Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. You are listening to our Stewardship Sunday Sermon, Ritual Giving, by Rev. Peter Yonker. Our Bible this morning is from Deuteronomy 26, Deuteronomy 26, verses 1 through 11. That's found on page 311 in your pew Bible, 311. And uh, just a couple words, uh, I, I already mentioned, I think you heard me say, today is Stewardship Sunday. Um, apologies to all visitors, it's always the worst thing to walk into a church on Stewardship Sunday, or, or it could be. I, I, don't think, I hope that that's not your experience today. Um, but today we, as a congregation, consider our giving to the church and the ministry of the church. And I don't want to do that simply in a way that says, uh, our church has many wonderful ministries, they all cost money, please consider your giving and please give generously. I, I want to together think about more than that. I want to think about stewardship and giving as a quality of our life in Christ. Giving is part of one of the ways that God gives us to help the Spirit work and sanctify our souls. And to do that, I want to look at the ancient Israelites' version of Stewardship Sunday. Yes, the ancient Israelites had a Stewardship Sunday. That's what we find in Deuteronomy 26. And it took place at the end, generally it took place at the end of their Feast of Weeks, or what we more commonly call Pentecost. And all the people would come from the countryside to Jerusalem, and they would give their yearly offering, their first fruit offering, and it would go something like this. Let's read. When you have entered the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and have taken possession of it, and have settled in it, Take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land the Lord your God is giving you and put them in a basket. Then go to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name, so the tabernacle and later the temple, and say to the priest in the office at the time, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. The priest shall take the basket from your hands and set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down into Egypt with a few people, and he lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to hard labor, And we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery and toil and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror, with signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. Place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. Then you and the Levites and the foreigners residing among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given you and your household. This is the word of the Lord. So that's the way the Israelites gave their annual gift. They did it almost every year. There were a couple of exceptions. I won't go into them today. But almost every year, this is something that the Israelites did for their Stewardship Sunday. And I hope as I read it, you could picture it in your mind. 
They traveled from the outlying areas with some of the produce of, of all their land, some of all that they produced from their hard work. When they got to Jerusalem, they put it in a basket. They got to the tabernacle and at the gate, I, I assume at the tent, the entrance to the tabernacle, they gave it to the priest. The priest took the basket and he carried it up to the altar that was in the courtyard and he placed it in front of the altar. And as it was placed in front of the altar, the people would recite the ritual words. They'd recite a litany and it was the same words year after year after year. My father was a wandering Aramean. He went down into Egypt with a few people, but there God made him a great nation. And then it went on from there to describe how God delivered them from Egypt, how he brought them through the wilderness, how he brought them to the land of milk and honey, a litany of blessing. That's the ritual, same every year. The produce, the basket, the priest up to the altar, the ritual words. Why did God make them do it this way? Why did God make them practice this ritual? It wasn't convenient. Some of these people lived hours or even days away from Jerusalem. You had to pack up the kids every year, put all the luggage and all that food in a cart and get all the way down to Jerusalem. I mean, couldn't they have just hired a Levite in this local town? Maybe a couple of Levites, get some big wagons, put all the gifts in the wagons, take it to Jerusalem, and then they could stay in the fields and get their business done. Why did the Lord make them go to Jerusalem and do this thing and say those words every single year? And always the same words. Year after year, after a while, they could say them in their sleep. My father was a wandering Aramean, yada, yada, yada. Why did God make them give their yearly offering with this ritual? And before I get to that answer, let me ask you a question. Does the Israelite giving ritual in Deuteronomy 26 remind you of anything? Does the Israelite giving ritual in Deuteronomy 26 remind you of anything that you do? Here's a big hint. We just did it. Deuter Deuteronomy 26 is the basis for the way we do our offering every single week here in this church. Think about it. You come to this place with some of the produce of your work and you put it in a basket, an offering plate, those beautiful offering plates with the text on them. And you give them to, okay, not a priest, but a deacon, an official of the church. And that deacon carries them down the aisle up towards the altar, not the altar, the table, but carries them forward. And as Larry finishes his organ modulation, he plays the magic chord. You all know the magic chord, right? That that, that G chord, that dominant seventh, and you always rise. And then the, the offering plates are brought down to the front and they're placed here. And, and then we rise and we say our ritual words. We say the same words every single week. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above you heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We do the same thing week after week after week. It's just like Deuteronomy 26. The baskets, the processional, the words. Why do we do that? I mean, there's other ways to give, especially in this day and age. A lot of us can give through EFT, right? Electronic file transfer. 
You just set when you want it to come out of your bank account, goes right to the office. And still more of you, uh, you write a check. And you send that in, and that works really great. There's lots of ways to give. Why do we, why do we insist on, on this, this ritual? If we could get rid of that, that would take five minutes out of our service. I could preach for five minutes longer every week. Wouldn't that be great? Why do we, no, seriously, why do we do that? And we can get giving ATMs. You know, there's such a thing. You can get an ATM that some churches have them, and you just zip your card, and your gift goes right in. Press one for debit, two for credit. Why do we do the ritual? We do it this way because rituals matter. Habits matter. Practices matter. The ritual that God gave to the ancient Israelites that we're still practicing today is one of the ways the Holy Spirit shakes our souls. First of all, it's just really amazing to think that every single week when we give our offering, we are participating in something that God's people have done for more than 3,000 years. Something the ancient Israelites did is happening, and we're still doing it today. So that's amazing on its face. But it's also a thing that the Lord uses to shape the way our souls are, to help us along the road of sanctification. That's how ritual works. Take the Lord's Prayer, for example. That's a ritual that all of us who've grown up in the church have learned, that ritual prayer that Jesus gave us. You probably first learned it at home. We certainly taught it to you at church. You say it in church. If you went to a Christian school, you said it in your Christian school. By the time you're 18 years old, most of us who grew up in the church have probably said the Lord's Prayer thousands of times. Right? Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We just roll off our tongue, and if we're honest, sometimes when we're praying that prayer, we're not thinking about what we're saying. But then one day, tragedy comes into your life. Someone you love, someone who you thought you couldn't do without is suddenly taken from you. And you find yourself reeling. You can hardly stand on your own two feet. And every day you get up and you're just not sure how you're going to get through. Every day you get up and you say, Lord, how am I going to make it through this day? And now you pray the prayer, and it's completely different. Now the prayer comes from the center of your heart. Lord, give me this day my daily bread. Give me this hour my daily bread. Give me this minute my daily bread. Just give me what it takes to put one foot in front of the other. Now you pray that prayer like you're a drowning man holding on to a raft, and you're so glad that you said that ritual prayer a thousand times and that the Holy Spirit used that to plant those words at the center of your heart. That's what ritual does. So what does our giving ritual, what did the Israelites giving ritual in Deuteronomy 26 do to their hearts? How did the Lord use that ritual to shape their hearts? How is he using it to shape ours? Two things. There's more than two, but only two this morning. First, this ritual, and Israel's ritual, teaches us to measure our worries against God's great faithfulness. 
teaches us to measure our worries against God's great faithfulness. If you look at the litany that Israel said, verses 5 through 10, those words that they were taught to repeat over and over again, there's a kind of a form to them. They first start with a trouble that Israel has, and then they mention God's deliverance from that trouble. So, my father was a wandering Aramean, and he only had a few people. In fact, he was having trouble having children, but the Lord made him a great nation. We were in Egypt, and we were oppressed, and we were in misery, but the Lord delivered us from that place. We had no land. We had no place to call our own. The Lord gave us this land of milk and honey. Okay, So the, the litany trains them to measure their worries against God's great faithfulness. This is such an important spiritual move. Every single one of us come into this place with significant worries and problems and things that keep us up at night. Struggles in our families. Maybe our marriage isn't working so well. Maybe our finances aren't coming together. Maybe it's something at our job. Maybe there's someone we love who has mental illness and we don't know how to help them. And what do we usually do with those worries? Our instinct, human instinct, is to measure those worries against our own strength, right? The strength of our hand and the strength of our heart. And when we make that measurement, we always come out wanting and we end up overwhelmed and we end up feeling like there's nothing we can do. And more than that, we pull ourselves in, right? This is too much. I can't possibly give. I can't possibly flow out to others. I can't. You, you draw in your resources because you feel overwhelmed. But when you measure your worries against God's great and persistent faithfulness, you have hope. Because it's anchored in an eternal God who is able to do more than we can ask or imagine. And that doesn't always mean that you can see how you're going to get out of this. And sometimes you have absolutely no idea how you're going to get out of this. But at least when you keep your eyes on God's great faithfulness, it gives you the strength to take another step, to go through the day, and to, even in the midst of your tears, flow out in love. When we do this ritual every week, when Israel did its ritual, taught them, it teaches us to measure our worries against God's great faithfulness. That's the first thing. The second thing that Israel's ritual and our giving ritual teaches us is it reminds us that life is good and that blessing and love are at the center of the universe. When we bring our offerings forward and we sing praise God from whom all blessings flow, it reminds us that life is good and that blessing and love are at the center of the universe. Another way of saying this, when we do this ritual, it keeps us from becoming Baal worshipers. Baal worshipers. Now you may say, well, I'm not aware that I was in any danger of worshiping Baal, and I'm not aware of any Baal temples in the vicinity, so how is this a danger? Baal worship is always a danger. The conflict between Baal's way of looking at the world and the Lord's way of looking at the world is ancient and persistent. It's still going on today. Because there's many people in this world who don't think that love is at the center of the world. They think that struggle, fear. They think that life is a competition, a fearful game, and you have to win, and you have to fight, 
and struggle and violence and competition are the center of, of a, what existence is, and so you have to be strong, you have to be persistent, and it's will and it's desire that gets you what you need in this world. That's Canaanite religion. The gods of Baal and the myths surrounding Baal are not loving, covenanting gods of grace. They are gods of competition. They are conniving, calculating gods who get what they want, who get their power by defeating the other gods. Competition is central to the whole mythological universe of Canaanite religion. Take Baal, for example. How did Baal become lord of the gods? He got that by defeating Yam, the god of the sea, this great and terrible being. He got a magic club from another god. He entered into mortal combat with Yam. He struck Baal struck Yom in the head, defeated him, dragged his body out of the sea and cut him up into a million pieces. And that's why Baal is triumphant. Born in competition and violence. And that mythology goes all the way down. The creation myths of the Canaanites and of the Babylonians have violence as the, the, the thing that created the world. Marduk fights against Tiamat, defeats Tiamat, cuts his body into pieces, and the pieces of his body become the world, right? So that's, that's just a fancy way. If you, if you live by those myths, you see violence and competition and struggle at the center of the world. This is so different than what our Lord teaches us and our Word teaches us. In this book, we learn that God created this world in love, a free offering of his grace. And he created it full of abundance. He called it good. He put us in a garden and gave us more than we needed and, and wanted to walk with us in love. And when this world fell, he comes again in love and sends his son to die on a cross for it. Love is at the center of the universe. There are still lots of people today who live by Baal's creed. I was watching figure skating the other day. Um, and some of you think that's, that's, I know, I knew that some people would think that was weird. But I like figure skating. And I was, it was an international competition, and one of the skaters was this little 15-year-old Russian girl. I don't remember her name was. She was this wispy little thing. She was a fierce competitor. She was unbelievable. She did triple axles like it was breathing, right? And you watched her skate, and you were just blown away, and you could see how strong she was. And the announcers were talking about her personal philosophy, and they said, yeah, she's a fierce competitor. She lives her life by the philosophy that second place is the first loser. That's Canaanite religion. That's Baal worship. Canaanite religion says... Desire and competition and will are the things that are going to get you somewhere in this world. So stay strong and stay hungry. In his word and through his son, our Lord tells us that God puts love and blessing at the center of this world. So love one another and praise God from whom all blessings flow. This week, Eula Grave members will have a chance to consider what you'd like to pledge for the upcoming year in support of the ministries of this church. 
You'll prayerfully do that, and those of you who remember uh, will bring your, your, your little envelopes. You'll put it in the offering plate as we take the offering next week along with your regular offering. And the deacons will carry those forward to the front, and Larry will play the magic chord, and we will all rise, and we will sing together the truth that is at the center of the universe about the God who created this world in love, who redeemed it in love, and who will make all things new in love. And we will open our hands, and we will open our hearts, and let that love take its rightful place at the center of our lives. Amen. Lord Jesus, I, I, I thank you for this place when we can come every week out of what admittedly feels like a struggle for us out there and is full of worry and responsibility. But we can come here and remember that we are eternally anchored through your sacrifice in your love. Lord, we thank you for the unending hope that gives us even in the midst of our tears. Lord, help us now as we leave this place to go out and to let ourselves flow out into the world in response to this great gift. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.